push yours. Okay, almost. Hey everyone, and welcome to Chef AJ Live. I'm your host, Chef AJ, and this is where I introduce you to amazing people like you who are doing great things in the world that I think you should know about. My guest today is Dr. Lee Edinger, and he's going to be talking about pediatric obesity and whether or not a plant-based diet can help. Please welcome him to the show. It's nice to meet you. Nice to meet you, Chef AJ. Thanks so much for having me. This is a big thrill for me. Right. Well, you're not just a pediatrician. You're also a nephrologist, right? Kidney doctor, yes. Yeah, so only is your kidney specialty only for kids or can you help anybody with kidney problems? Pediatrics, yeah, only pediatrics. You only um, help little kidneys. <laughs> yeah, yeah, newborns up to 2021. 20, oh, wow, well, that, that's fantastic. And so are you also considered an obesity specialist? Yes, and actually I left my pediatric nephrology practice, which was based in a hospital in order to focus on pediatric obesity. I founded the Dr. Herbivore practice to offer telemedicine services for families struggling with their weight. And can anyone live anywhere to uh, take, take this off opportunity to see you via telemedicine? Do they have to live in a particular state? Good question. Yes, I'm licensed in New York and New Jersey. So I'm working with families in New York and New Jersey. I'm looking to work with families in New York and New Jersey. But uh, as part of my telehealth practice, I have e-courses that uh, are part of the program that I work with families so that they can do some home study. And those e-courses are available worldwide. That's fantastic. You'll have to give me all that information. I'll put it in the show notes, okay? Sure. So you're Dr. Herbivore. That's a very cute name. Are you an herbivore? I know you're a doctor. Yes, I'm an herbivore since 2014. Nice. That's uh, almost 10 years now. Yeah, yeah. This this summer, it was nine years. Well, what made you decide to make the switch to nutrient-rich? Um, so have you heard of um, Dorian Ryder, a cyclist in Australia? I mean, I, I, I've heard the name. I don't, I'm somebody with a YouTube channel, I'm guessing. Exactly. I don't, right. Exactly. Yeah, so I enjoy cycling. I've been a passionate cycling for, for decades now. And I'm watching my cycling videos on YouTube. Uh, and one of his uh, videos pops up. Uh, and I'm watching, it was really funny uh, comedy about cycling. And so I started to look at some of his other content, expecting more comedy and uh, came across some of his nutrition content. And I was like, oh, that, that kind of makes sense. And that might help my cycling. So initially uh, I was doing it for selfish reasons. I started to make the change through, uh, uh, started to research it more, started to become more plant-based uh, back in 2014. And I lost weight. And my cycling got better. It's easier to go uphill. But sure enough, uh, my blood pressure, which was creeping up, uh, normalized. My uh, cholesterol, which had always been high, normalized. And I was learning more and more about it. Actually, um, your stories was one of the first stories I came across, Chef AJ, because uh, my initial medical introduction was finding some content from Dr. Google online. Uh, one of his uh, retreats that he um, published on YouTube and, and your story actually came up way back in 2014 is very inspiring. Oh, yeah, thank um, you yeah. so much. So um, kept learning about it, read the start solution, watching the documentaries and really uh, saw the benefits pretty quickly. So been sticking with it, uh, learning more about the environment and all the animal welfare, all the other issues that are a part of eating this way. And and uh, it just makes a whole lot of sense to me. So I've been sticking with it for over nine years now. Yeah. Well, that's fantastic. How did uh, how did it affect the way you practice medicine? The knowledge that you gleaned. Yeah. So as a pediatric kidney specialist um, at a tertiary care center at a major hospital, uh, 
local pediatricians would refer me patients with high blood pressure. So kids with high blood pressure can be a sign of a kidney problem. So I'd rule out a kidney problem, I'd rule out a heart problem, a hormone problem, and I'd be sitting there with a child with obesity, often the whole family with obesity. So as I was seeing the benefits in myself and learning about the benefits for weight and for blood pressure, I started to teach families that I was working with in the kidney clinic and uh, actually getting kids off of medicine or not having to start medicine for blood pressure in kids. So that was very rewarding. No one ever thanked me when I gave them a prescription for antihypertensives. They would often ask, well, like, how long do I have to take this? But if I could show someone and give someone some tools uh, on how to change their diet at home and they come back and their blood pressure would be better, they'd be like, well, thanks, doc. Uh, you know, they were very appreciative because they knew that they now had the power over, over these. As, as I was learning more about it, I became board certified in obesity medicine and I joined my hospital's pediatric weight management clinic. Uh, trying to help families with the plant-based diet that are struggling with obesity. That's fantastic. Now you mentioned high blood pressure and I've had several shows. I've done almost 1700 shows. We've had lots of shows on hypertension, including several with, I don't know if you've heard of Dr. C.E. Grimm. He considers himself the world's leading experts in hypertension. And he says, where there is no salt, there is no high blood pressure. How do you feel about that statement? I totally agree. Um, and you can think about it this way, that plants have so little salt. So we need salt for uh, muscle contraction and nerve conduction. Plants don't have muscles or nerves, uh, so they don't really need the salt. So plants absorb very little salt from the soil, uh, so little that um, herbivores on farms are given a salt lick. Uh, they have to go out of their way to get salt. In the wild, herbivores uh, lick dry riverbeds or rocks to get their salt. So um, the carnivores don't need the salt lick. They come along and eat the herbivore and gather the salt that the herbivore ate uh, from the herbivore's muscles where it's stored uh, part of the cells in the muscles. So if we're only eating plants, we're getting very little salt. Uh, if we're eating meat, we're eating the salt in the muscle of the herbivore. So just by going plant-based and not eating the meat and only eating the plants, uh, especially whole plants that haven't been processed, put through a factory, put in a package, yeah, we get much less salt. And it's been known for decades that uh, eating less salt will lower your blood pressure. So, so where are these children getting salt? Because does do animal products inherently have salt? Yes, because uh, the uh, salt is from the muscle, the animal product. So they're getting a, a large amount of salt from that. Um, also, uh, uh, cheese is a is a really big contributor to salt in the standard American diet. But uh, people talk about chips and soups and things like that. But just about any package that you take off the shelf uh, has some salt in it. Perhaps uh, salt is a preservative. Salt uh, is flavorful for us. So the food companies, I think, have have latched onto this. Uh, infusing salt into our foods to make us buy more uh, cereal. Even, even breakfast cereals have a tremendous amount of salt. So uh, just switching out a breakfast cereal for a fruit smoothie or oatmeal or something like that can really reduce the salt content of your day. Yeah. Have you ever in your practice seen an overweight or an obese child where the parents were not themselves overweight or obese? Yes, that, that does happen. Um, usually, like, you, like you're bringing up, um, there is a high correlation that if a parent or both parents 
have obesity, then there's like a 70 to 80% chance that the child will have obesity too. Uh, but yeah, certainly there are times when the child has obesity and the parent does not, that happens. And how, how does that happen then? I mean, we're talking biological child, not an adopted child. Sure. Well, um, I think uh, I think we're in a situation of evolutionary mismatch uh, so that uh, we evolved or were designed, if you will, uh, at a time when calories were very scarce. And uh, all of our senses are geared for seeking out calories. And our reward centers of our brain like it very much when we find higher and higher calories because it means we're going to survive another day. So this mechanism, this adaptation that we have to our environment has helped us over the hundreds of thousands of years that we've been wandering this planet. But uh, most of that time we were in search of calories, but now calories are easily within reach. And so this mechanism of seeking out calories and rewarding ourselves for finding calories uh, in our brains has now become problematic, that there's just so many calories around that uh, in the past that helped us, but now is starting to hurt us. So I don't think it's anyone's fault, especially a child. Um, and then also, if you think about the parent, as a parent, uh, I'm a parent of three, uh, I have an evolutionary urge to feed and maybe even overfeed my children in order to help them survive any upcoming famine. Uh, but the famines aren't coming these days. Uh, and so uh, even though I have this evolutionary urge to feed my child, my child has its evolutionary urge to eat as many calories as possible, uh, it's just the fact that we have too many calories avail easily available this day, these days, and that's why we're struggling with the obesity epidemic. Yeah. How do you feel about the type of food that's in general served in schools to children, if you call it food? Yeah, yeah, that's been a big, that's a big problem. Um, yeah, certainly uh, so much dairy is uh, by the federal government is uh, needs to be served in, in the school cafeterias and the processed foods. It's just uh, cost savings. Um, and yeah, it's really disappointing uh, looking at that food. And then, you know, it's no wonder we have uh, epidemics of obesity and, and now hypertension in kids and things like that. Uh, it's very disappointing. But uh, I've been hearing about various states like Illinois and um, New York State have been changing the foods served in schools and are making new policies about healthier foods in schools. So I'm hoping that some progress is being made. Well, you live in New York and they have a mayor yeah. that's really uh, trying to promote plant-based eating. Yeah, I've heard him speak, Mayor Eric Adams. It's wonderful. And um, getting uh, uh, vegan Fridays in the schools and uh, also the work he's doing in the hospitals there, uh, that 11 hospitals in the city have now default plant-based meals that uh, someone actually has to ask for the meat uh, to appear on their tray. They're getting default plant-based meals. And the, I, when I heard him speak about it, it was interesting that there was an original pushback that, oh, this would be too expensive to serve plant-based meals, but they're actually saving 59 cents a tray uh, on the plant-based <laughs> meals. And you think in 11 hospitals, uh, breakfast, lunch, and dinner, hundreds of thousands of meals per day uh, is a great cost saving. So there's that benefit too. And then also, yeah, go ahead. I was gonna say, it's kind of sad to think that the reason they're doing it is to save money, not because it's the right thing to do or healthier. Unfortunately, that's the, the society we live in, yes. Um, okay. But uh, talking also about savings is that um, Sodexo, which is the company that provides the foods, uh, they've done studies on plant-based meals 
uh, in their institutional settings where they serve food. And uh, they report that when plant-based meals are taken, there's a 24% greenhouse gas emissions savings too. So uh, good for the environment too. Cost savings, good for the environment. So hopefully more and more institutions, I know that uh, Mayor Adams is now working on the prisons in uh, New York City too, in and around New York City too, uh, for the food being served to the prisoners. Um, yeah, so to hopefully more and more institutions will uh, adopt this, if not for the health benefits, but then also for the environmental and cost savings benefits. Yeah, fantastic. You know, when we were communicating by email before uh, came on the show, you were mentioning you enjoy when I have Dr. Lyle on and you talked about the pleasure trap. You said you had something that you call the parent trap. What is that? <laughs> Yeah, yeah. Well, like I described before, um, uh, as Dr. Lau describes the pleasure trap that the reward centers of our brain uh, reward us for these pleasurable foods. I kind of made my own little thought in there, the contribution to the pleasure trap, and I called it the parent trap. Um, that, uh, yeah, as I said before, as parents, I want to feed or, or even overfeed my children. So um, that may be contributing to uh, the obesity epidemic for kids, too, that uh, this survival mechanism that helped us uh, is now perhaps hurting us. So yeah, that was my little uh, contribution to Dr. Lyle's pleasure trap is maybe we could add a little footnote about a parent trap too. <laughs> so I don't know what the statistics are exactly because Dr. Furman says they're wrong because they skewed BMI to make people seem not overweight when they are, but something like over 70% or maybe it's 75% of people are overweight or obese. How many of those are children? Um, for you know, those are that's the adults criteria, the adult statistics. But in kids, it's um, 19%. So from age two to 19, uh, that demographic. And um, unfortunately, some uh, race ethnicities are uh, having more obesity. Um, some socioeconomic classes are having more obesity. So uh, even that 19% uh, doesn't tell the whole story. I think like Hispanic American teenagers, it's up around 26%. So yeah, there's there's a, a growing problem, and this is uh, decade after decade increasing. And even the early statistics, the early data out of the epidemic uh, shows that it was worsening. You know, when when people couldn't uh, go to the gym, when people were stuck at home, when people were were uh, eating perhaps because of the stress of the situation. So yeah, um, we're we have a problem here. Wow. So you're saying it's about one in five. I don't know why I heard it was one in three, or is that for obese or just overweight? Are there more overweight children than obese children? Yes. Yeah. So overweight is greater than the 85th percentile and obese is greater than the 95th percentile. So uh, it's, a, it's a bell curve and the line was drawn uh, when you classify someone as with overweight or with obesity. And uh, yeah, so down the bell curve, the with obesity is a, is a smaller portion. You know, it's interesting because you say with obesity, I learned very on that you cannot call somebody over, obese. You say they have, they have obesity. Right. Uh, so in uh, 2013, the American Medical Association recognized that obesity is a disease. And so uh, person first language, uh, rather than saying something like the diabetic person, um, you say the person with diabetes, uh, so rather than saying the obese person, you say the person with obesity. So it's something that they have. It doesn't define them. Uh, it doesn't characterize them. It's just uh, something the per like so someone with cancer. You wouldn't say the cancerous person. Uh, so, <laughs> <laughs> oh, that's. Um, I mean, it's not funny. So, not funny. Yeah. Artists, um, 
I but see. languages, yes, these days language is important. So recognizing that this is something that the person has and um, and is not not their fault. It's the evolutionary mess, mismatch we're in. It's the genes that they perhaps carry. So um, that's the uh, considered the polite, politer, politer way to. Right, because you're not allowed to use the F word anymore unless you're Dr. McDougal. <laughs> Right. <laughs> yeah. yeah. That's not considered appropriate. Right. Um, so are if a child is overweight or obese, statistically, are they more likely to become an adult that is overweight or obese? Yeah, there's uh past thoughts that people would kids would outgrow their obesity. Uh, but there's um, been two studies uh that looked at toddlers with obesity and saw that 80, 85% of them as teenagers would have obesity also. And then there was another study of teenagers looking at them when they were in their thirties. And again, 90% of teenagers with obesity will still have uh, obesity in their thirties. And if you think about that, those were studies over decades. So that was looking at a cohort of patients from 30 year, 20, 30 years ago, um, and the obesity epidemic has only gotten worse. So I would say that, yes, there is now a very high chance that a child or teenager with obesity will still have obesity as an adult. Right. It doesn't get any easier as you get older, it's, you know, to solve the problem. Yes. Yeah. Oh, how do you feel about gastric bypass surgery for children? Uh, yeah. So it can, I've had patients that have done it. Um, it can be appropriate. Uh, this was some of the shock that came out of the January 2023 American Academy of Pediatric Guidelines that I'll be talking about that recommended bariatric surgery for teenagers with severe obesity. Um, yeah, it is a tool. Um, there are studies that show that it's considered safe and effective even for teenagers. So it can be a tool for someone either who's not able or not willing to change their diet and lifestyle. And um, so, yeah, we'll see, we'll see over time, but uh, the initial responses have been good. And yeah, it's a uh, one tool in the toolbox. Um, but are there any long-term studies with children having had a bariatric surgery if, if they maintain the weight loss? Because in adults, many yeah. of them don't. Many if, they of them never, if they never learn how to eat, how does just making their stomach mechanically smaller help them? The longest term studies have been about 10 years of doing this type of surgery on teenagers. And yeah, it just show that it's considered safe and effective for keeping the weight off. And, and um, yeah, I mean, if you think about it, it's all uh, risks and benefits. So there's certainly risks of the surgery, um, but the benefits are thought to be, especially for a younger person, uh, not having decades of obesity. And uh, I've even heard some people say, well, even if they keep the weight off for just a few years, that's a few years that they're not suffering from hopefully not diabetes or other complications of obesity. So yeah, for, for some kids, it's better for them to get the weight off. You know, we, we worry about uh, the long-term consequences that obesity can cause over 200 various diseases. Um, but even for the child, yeah, we're worried about them developing diabetes or heart disease, but that may be decades away. Uh, even the child with obesity is, is at a high risk of having problems like today, right now, 
Uh, for example, 60% of children with obesity also have sleep apnea. So if they're not getting a good night's sleep, uh, that's been shown actually to affect their schooling, that they're not going to be able to perform as well the next day on performance and uh, attention. So these are the kind of reasons why we want to help someone with obesity as a teenager and not put it off for years or decades. Uh, and as we discussed, it's not likely to go away on its own. And secondly, there are issues that can be affecting the child right now. Also growth, um, that the child's hips and knees uh, can be affected by carrying around that extra weight. So um, lots, of, lots of reasons to uh, be more aggressive. And this is why the American Academy of Pediatrics issued their new clinical practice guidelines to uh, no longer be doing watchful waiting. Uh, now it's time to intervene, um, whether that's with uh, surgery as was described or as, as I would hope, uh, lifestyle changes. Have you had success with any of your patients just adopting a diet without resorting to any kind of drugs or surgery? Yes, um, it, honestly, it's, it's rare. It's hard. Um, often you have to get the whole family to buy in. Uh, we don't want to make one child feel different, uh, that they're getting a different plate at dinner time, or that they can't eat what their uh, siblings are eating. So it's uh, more, more likely to lead to successful outcomes if the whole family is, uh, is uh, along with the lifestyle changes. Wow. It's, it's hard. It's not easy. Um, it's uh, certainly not easy for adults. Uh, there are additional challenges for kids, um, especially the younger kids where uh, they don't, uh, they're not the ones buying and preparing the meals. So yeah, I got to get the whole family involved. Yeah. What about your family? Are they herbivores too? For the most part, yes. Um, so my wife is, yeah, she's hardcore herbivore um, and uh, she's out rock climbing today. She's very active and very plant-based uh, along with me. So I have three kids. I have 17-year-old twins, boy-girl twins, and a 13-year-old. Um, the 17-year-old girl is, I'd say like 95% uh, plant-based. Uh, the 13-year-old girl is very plant-based too, though she'll eat cheese. Um, my son, however, um, it will eat meat when he's outside of the home, um, when he's with his buddies or on a date or things like that. So that's how our family rolls. Have you shown him game changers? Yeah, yeah, he's seen he's seen that one. Uh, or actually, no, actually, I don't think he's seen that one. Um, yeah, but it's interesting when when we, we my my kids were in elementary school when we first made the switch. Uh, and at first, it, it took them like two weeks to notice that the milk had changed. Like they they weren't uh, they weren't as uh, aware of what was going on at that time. Uh, we were just feeding them what we uh, variations of what we usually fed them. Um, but yeah. Um, he really, he really wanted to be a football player when he grew up. And so, yeah, he would questions about whether he could still be big and strong as a plant-based person. And yeah, so um, I think we showed him some clips. I don't know if Game Changers was that, but we showed him there were some other um, uh, prominent football players at the time uh, that were plant-based. So we were able to reassure him that, that things would be okay. He's not into football anymore, uh, but uh, he... He'll, he'll eat some plant-based um, at home. We we have cheese for the two kids at home. Uh, they insist and we allow They them. insist. Wait a minute. They insist. Are they buying it? So what do you mean they insist? Yeah, yeah. They have they have jobs. They <laughs> if we yeah, if they if they if we didn't buy it, they would. Well then uh, maybe you shouldn't buy it. So like if your kids were smokers, would you buy their cigarettes? Good point. 
I have. I mean, no, I'm not telling I you. Have, I mean, I'm, just, I'm not telling you your kids should or shouldn't eat cheese. But if, if, if I mean, if you know something is harmful, why do you have to be the one to buy it if they have money to buy it? They're going to eat it anyway. So why do you have to be their drug pusher? I'm asking. That's an excellent point. You put me on the spot. This is how we maintained peace in my family. Um, we we have ordered um, uh, some of the pricier plant-based cheeses, and they certainly enjoy them. Uh, when we're making meals at home. But yes, uh, you have an excellent point. And um, I wish there weren't cheese at home, um, but for now there is. And that is how we maintain some- oh, Sorry, I'm not usually this confrontational, but I just like, you know, yeah. when you say they insist, I'm thinking, well, you know, kids insist on a lot of things that they- That's would true, do. that's true. And yes, as, as parents, uh, oh. we are uh, obliged to keep them safe and healthy and and and- their happiness is secondary to those things. Yes, I yeah. agree. No, I mean, it, it's uh, fine. But, you know, I'm, I apologize if I was rude, but it's just, I, I hear so much from parents that struggle with their children's eating. Yeah. Eventually it leads to some type of problems. It may not be obesity, but other things. And so, I mean, there's yeah. just so many good cheeses right now. Miyoko Shinner, you know, a, a Kite Hill there. I mean, um, Rich Rolls-Rife, Julie Piat. I mean, it, it, yes. plant-based cheese has never been at a higher level of, of um, deliciousness. Yes, I agree. Yeah, we, we've uh, tried them all. And uh, um, unfortunately, we still allow some dairy in my home. Well, is it that they don't uh, like the taste of them? Because, I, you know, I'm, I'm sure you either have read or familiar with Dr. Barnard's book, The Cheese Trap and uh, your, your Body in Balance, where he talks about why, why cheese in particular is more deleterious than possibly even animal products. Yes, you make excellent points. All right. And, uh, Tell the kids. Uh, yeah, I'll be I'll be talking to the wife and kids. <laughs> well, who who makes the meals in your family? Because you both sound busy, doctor. Actually, actually, all of us, um, even even my kids. So uh, actually, my wife and I aren't great chefs in the kitchen. So what we do is um, there is a woman in our community who makes plant based meals and delivers. So we'll occasionally do that, and then we also order plant based meals from companies that deliver, like. Um, Hello Fresh and Green Chef. And uh, these are really uh, easy to prepare kind of meals. So uh, my kids will even make it. My son will be like, oh, I'm making dinner tonight. I want to have this stuff uh, that got delivered. So um, actually all of, the, all of my kids and my wife and I, we kind of take turns and rotate on the uh, meal preparation. So um, that's how it works. That's very family. cool. Yeah. There's more and more wonderful uh, options for people that don't want to make their own meals with food delivery services. Some even that will do SOS free eating, uh, in cooking. I mean, you know? Yeah. Yeah. It's a great time to be plant-based. Yeah. Well, um, you wanted to share a wonderful presentation that you recently gave to, I believe, a conference. Yes. Uh, this was the New Jersey chapter of the American Academy of Pediatrics kindly invited me uh, to their annual conference. And so I gave a talk to about 100 pediatricians, um, kind of reflecting on the recent... Can you see that? Yes. You just want to change it into a slideshow mode. Yeah, perfect. All right, can you see my laser what is intense? Yeah, what is intensive health behavior lifestyle about a treatment anyway? Anyway, yeah. Um, so um, they invited me to talk about the January 2023 American Academy of Pediatrics guidelines, which recommended this intensive health behavior and lifestyle treatment 
for pediatric obesity. So yeah, I'd like to share that with your audience. Now, the audience was, as I said, 100 pediatricians, and um, I didn't know if they knew anything about plant-based. So there might be some basic information here for your audience, but I don't know, maybe someone also is tuning in for the first time to Chef AJ Live and can get something out of it. But I think your, your veterans also will have, um, have some hopefully new information from this too. All right, so what I'll be talking about is the new guidelines. And uh, I'm gonna talk about plant-based eating for weight loss and kind of rewrite the American Academy of Pediatrics advice. So the clinical practice guidelines provide this algorithm, which starts with screening for pediatric obesity. Again, these are instructions from the American Academy of Pediatrics to the 60,000 pediatricians in the country as to how to evaluate and manage pediatric obesity. So there's a diagnosis, which um, as I mentioned before, overweight is this 85th to 95th percentile for body mass index, and then obesity is greater than the 95th percentile how to evaluate pediatric obesity, what kind of blood test to order, and then this treatment category of what to do when you find pediatric obesity. So the guidance says that the pediatrician should treat overweight and obesity and the comorbidities, so like diabetes or hypertension concurrently, following the principles of the medical home and the chronic care model, using a family-centered and non-stigmatizing approach that acknowledges bio, the um, obesity's biologic, social, and structural drivers. So as you can see here for overweight and oh, people with obesity, motivational interviewing is for all ages. So that's a style, a technique of talking with families that uh, doctors are trained in as to kind of assess their motivation to make changes, where are they on the spectrum of contemplating changes or enacting changes, or maybe slipping back on changes and wanting to get started again. So then also recommended for age six and up, and this scale is to like consider the pros and cons of under age six, but that's this intensive health behavior and lifestyle treatment. And then this was kind of controversial, but that for over age 12 with obesity was the new drugs, the weight loss pharmacotherapy. And then also controversial was the surgery for obesity over age 12. Um, there's some backlash about that. All right, so what is IHBLT? So it's for patient and families in partnership with a multidisciplinary treatment team and promptly for the child or adolescent with overweight or obesity. So no longer watchful waiting, which was the previous American Academy of Pediatrics stance. What is it? So it's health education and skill building on multiple topics, behavior modification and counseling. It can take place in a healthcare center or in a community-based setting with linkages to the medical home. How much? Uh, longitudinal treatment across three to 12 months, ideally with greater than 26 contact hours. And this was a bit controversial also because uh, pediatricians and families were saying, um, who has time for that? And uh, who's going to pay for this? Uh, that's a lot of contact hours. This uh, IHBLT can take place in groups uh, or with individuals or both. And then hopefully they're saying face-to-face, -face, but there is growing evidence that a virtual meeting uh, can, can be beneficial too. And this is what I do uh, on my telehealth practice in New York and Jersey is the virtual, trying to make it convenient for families. All right, so trying to, it was a hundred page document 
the clinical practice guidelines and trying to narrow down what exactly was being recommended for the nutrition advice. So reduce sugar-sweetened beverages, nutrition education and counseling, 60 minutes of moderate to vigorous physical activity every day, reduction in sedentary time. Now uh, that's changed in the past. It was screen time. You want to reduce screen time, but everyone's walking around with screens in their hand. Uh, so now they're just saying reduce sedentary time and then age appropriate amount of sleep. So I actually, this, um, these guidelines came out in January. I had the opportunity in February, I was on a Zoom call like this with about 40 other uh, pediatricians with an interest in pediatric obesity across the country. And we were meeting with one of the authors of this 100 page document. And I asked her, I was like, well, you know, since I was a kid, uh, people have been saying uh, reduce sugar sweetened beverages and get more exercise. So why do you think now uh, that this is going to work? It doesn't seem to have been working for the past several decades. And her response was, well, um, that's the 26 uh, visits per year that we're recommending. Hopefully, uh, what hasn't worked in the past will now work with more emphasis, with more, you might've only seen your pediatrician once a year, but now we're encouraging your, to see your pediatrician and work on this more often, and hopefully that works. So maybe, I guess time will tell. We'll see if what didn't work in the past is gonna work in the future, just when there's more of it. And then the other question from her was, uh, for that I had for her was what is the nutrition education? The document is very vague about what that should be uh, beyond this measure uh, reducing sugar sweetened beverages. And her um, admission was that there really aren't studies that show the ideal diet, uh, the ideal eating plan for someone, for a teenager, for a six-year-old to help them lose weight. Um, and uh, yeah, I got to agree with her. Unfortunately, there doesn't seem to be great studies out there. So that's why they kind of kept it vague uh, because it's uh, evidence-based uh, recommendations and there's not a lot of evidence. There is one line in there about what the nutrition counseling should be. And unfortunately it's cut off. I hope you can read it, but uh, it's an approach that teaches, it's cut off on my screen. <laughs> Um, it's an approach that teaches families to set goals for meal preparation, grocery shopping, and learning skills, including portion size and label reading. And I kind of take issue that this non-diet lifestyle modification, uh, it kind of sounds like a diet. If you're limiting portion sizes, if you're checking labels, um, that sounds like a diet to me. So I'd like to reword this, rephrase this, uh, with some of the principles of the plant-based diet. And unfortunately, there are not studies of the plant-based diet in kids. So I'm going to share some studies with you of the plant-based diet with, uh, that were done in adults. And hopefully we can apply those concepts and those principles to kids. So one of the principles I like is that food for weight loss are plants that just came out of the ground or off of a tree. There really should be no need for portion control or label reading, and I'll explain why. So for this audience that uh, probably didn't know about the whole foods plant-based eating, I define for them that it emphasizes whole, minimally processed foods. We want to avoid all animal products. Really all the calories eaten are from plants. We don't need the calories and the nutrients to go through the animal and then us eat the animal, animal, we go directly to the source. 
and excluding refined foods like added sugars and processed oils. And that really differentiates the uh, concept of whole foods, plant-based eating from vegan. Uh, vegan seeks to exclude all uses of animals by humans, including for food, clothing, entertainment, animal testing. So I might say that my belt is vegan um, because it doesn't have any leather in it, but it's I wouldn't consider it part of a whole food plant-based eating. I, I hope not to have to eat my belt. Um, now, there are some foods that we call accidentally vegan, like Doritos, Coca-Cola. They have no animal products in them, but they wouldn't be part of a whole food plant-based diet because they are highly refined and um, someone eating whole food plant-based is trying to eat healthier. So the concept that I like from Jeff Novick, a registered dietitian, is this calorie density scale. And it really is based on the fact that people eat about the same weight of food every day. It's determined by the size of your stomach and uh, satiety hormones. And all the foods that we eat have a calorie density, so how many calories per pound of food, and it can they can be plotted on this scale. So all the way to the left, fiber and water in our food has no calories. And then the leafy greens uh, have very little calories, going on to vegetables, fruits, whole grains, and then some of the more fattier um, uh, plants. You can say a fatty plant. <laughs> shouldn't say it about people, but you can say it <laughs> like avocado, <laughs> nuts and so. So you can see all oh, these beans. We have are, to say a plant with fat. Yeah, maybe we should say a plant that's <laughs> um, So, uh, and then you get into the animal products and some of the more processed foods, oils, desserts uh, that have higher calorie density. So when, um, when I look at a sandwich, a deli sandwich like this, uh, I can plot the various ingredients here uh, on the scale. So like the whole grain bread would be around here, the lettuce, onions, and, uh, and tomato would be down here, the deli meat over here, and the cheese over here. So in order to make this a lower calorie density meal uh, and plant-based, we can look at something like this, which is taking out the meat and the cheese and uh, filling it up with more veggies. And now everything is over here on the side. And uh, that's gonna encourage more plant-based because you're gonna fill up um, with all the uh, same weight of food, but much get much less calories. You could feel full uh, and consume much less calories. So people, people say pasta, oh, I can't eat pasta. Pasta makes me gain weight, but you can see the pasta is around here and the uh, meatballs is over here and the cheese sprinkled on top. Uh, and people people uh, put a lot more cheese on it than that is over here. The spaghetti sauce can really vary depending on what's in it, uh, how much high fructose corn syrup or or uh, or veggies or meat is in the spaghetti sauce. So that really varies. Uh, but I can make this um, pasta into a lower calorie density meal by uh, taking the meatballs off, taking the cheese off, and uh, filling it up. We're making it more like a pasta salad. And I also saw earlier this week, you had uh, uh, Daniel Medina, who's, who's great, Fit and Play Mama, and she made a pasta and fruit salad, which yeah. also uh, looked delicious and would also be down here. And you could eat the same weight of the salad and get much, much less calories, feeling full, uh, but not overdoing it on the calories. So for viewers at home, uh, you might be grabbing uh, your pasta box and saying, wait a second, um, looking at the pasta, it looks like the pasta actually has a tremendous amount of calories. Going back a slide, 
it seems like I said the pasta was down here, but it seems like the pasta could be even uh, more calorie dense than the meatball, right? So here's the catch. And another reason why uh, labels are not so helpful is that is how the pasta is packaged. It's not how it's actually cooked. What do we do with that pasta is boil it in water and the pasta absorbs the water. So the calories go from 280 calories per 100 grams, uh, pretty much in half down to 131 per 100. And uh, the same goes for rice. Uh, rice would appear to have a very high calorie density, but as it absorbs the water, the calorie density goes way down. And uh, same with oats, that oats uh, appear to have a very high calorie density, but when the oats become oatmeal and absorb all that boiling water, the calorie density really decreases. So the calories aren't leaving in the steam, uh, it's just that the bulk of the food, the bulk of these starches expands. And since people are eating the same weight of food per day, if you fill up on these lower calorie density starches, once they've absorbed all the water, then you're gonna be full and satisfied and actually get much less calories, much further uh, to the left on that scale than would appear by just looking at the label. And just to emphasize this uh, a little more, uh, the dry rice here is uh, on this spot on the uh, calorie density scale, but when you cook it and it absorbs all that water and becomes a nice bowl of steamed rice, it goes way down here. And this is an argument against putting um, that oil in the cooking rice or covering the rice with butter before you eat it is that the rice is gonna look exactly the same in the bowl, but the rice that was cooked with oil absorbs that oil. And then rather than going down the scale, uh, absorbing the water, uh, the rice might end up further to the right, having absorbed the water and the oil together. And you'll feel the same weight of food, but the rice with the oil has such higher calorie density. And so this is why uh, in some cultures, uh, that they just steam the rice, there is not as much obesity, like I'm thinking in, in Asia, whereas in other cultures that uh, cook the rice in oil or other traditions that uh, put butter on the rice before serving it uh, can have more of a problem historically with obesity. So this is a study that kind of put the uh, calorie density model into um, uh, to show the, the benefits of the calorie density model. Uh, so healthy weight women were uh, brought into a study center and they were kind of tricked. Uh, they were asked to eat from a buffet and were told, uh, were, were asked questions about the quality of the food. What did you like? What did you, did this taste good? Uh, how did you like that? Uh, and they thought that they were filling out surveys about what they liked and didn't like about the food. But in effect, in, in fact, the researchers were measuring the quantity of the food that was eating. And on some days, the women were served a low calorie density buffet, and some days a medium calorie density buffet, and on some days a high calorie density buffet. And it was shown that over two days of breakfast, lunch, dinner, snack, breakfast, lunch, dinner, snack, uh, whether whatever buffet they were served, the women ate about the same weight of foods. Over the two days, they, on average, no matter what group they were in, ate about six pounds of food. But what was different 
at the end of the two days was the calorie intake. So the women that were eating from the high calorie density buffet ended up eating over the two days, 850 more calories than the women that were eating from the low calorie density buffet, even though they're eating the same weight of food. And if you can extrapolate that out a week, uh, that's about 3000 extra calories that the women at the high density buffet were eating. Um, although they're eating the same weight of food, uh, they didn't know it basically. And I feel like we're kind of in that experiment also that the buffet that we're being served day after day is this high calorie density buffet. And we can uh, fill up on that and get too much calories. But if we swap out the buffet to the low calorie density buffet, then we can eat the same weight of food, feel full, feel satisfied, but get much less calories. And the way to swap out the buffet is to switch over to the plant-based diet, which is way to the left in calorie density, eating more fruits and vegetables and these starches. So when someone keeps, comes and sees me for help with their weight, uh, I'm not talking to them about taking away foods. I'm talking to them about uh, swapping out foods and what's called crowding out. So having them fill up, get a, a satisfied, satisfactory amount of food, not portion controlling, but rather filling up uh, on the lower calorie density foods, which are the whole plants, uh, so that they can be satisfied and still get less calories. Another example of this is the BROAD study, which took adults with obesity and randomized them into two groups. The control group was given normal care, eat less, exercise more. The intervention group was taught how to eat the plant-based diet, uh, eat whole grains, legumes, starches, bread, pasta, potatoes, vegetables, and fruit ad-lib. They weren't told to restrict at all. Avoid animal products and oils, and also avoid the high-fat plant foods, uh, such as nuts and avocados and highly processed foods. So there were 32 people in the control group and 33 people in the intervention group, and they were followed over six months. And at the end of the six months, both groups had lost weight. The control group lost 3.5 pounds, but the intervention group lost 26 pounds, which is great. So here's another example of how the calorie density and how eating plant-based ad-lib can really fill you up and help you lose weight by getting less calories. So what I like about the plant-based diet is that it creates scarcity. So as I was saying before, we're in this evolutionary mismatch that there's just calories all around but we evolved at a time of calorie scarcity. So when we're finding foods in the supermarket without labels, uh, we ignore whole aisles of the supermarket uh, that don't have whole food plant-based. So all of a sudden our supermarket has much less square footage. The path that we go through to do our shopping has much less uh, options. And so we've created scarcity again and more matching our environment uh, from 100,000 years ago, for example. And really, um, when we go out to restaurants, um, there might only be one restaurant in a row of restaurants that we have plant-based options at. And even on the menu, uh, there might, if you eat at a restaurant that has uh, meat and, and plant-based options, there might be only a few plant-based options for you. So again, creating scarcity, uh, like how we evolved at a time when, when calories were scarce. So we can do that by selecting foods without labels. 
I like this also, and I know you've talked about this in the past, Chef AJ, that this isn't really moderation, that, that moderation is really a very vague word. Uh, it means so many different things to so many different people, uh, and it's uh, a constant argument with ourselves, a constant negotiation with ourselves, uh, whether we've been eating well and can slip a little bit, or whether we can, uh, uh, how do we moderate our portion sizes? It's very vague and ill-defined. Uh, this is ad-lib eating, as was shown in the two studies, that you can eat till you're full and still get less calories. Mm -hmm. And when you've drawn a line and said, I'm only going to eat the whole plants, I'm not going to eat the animals and animal products, uh, that seems extreme to some. Uh, but for others, uh, I hope that it can be liberating, that you can feel like uh, you have less decisions to make, uh, less negotiating with ourselves about whether we should or shouldn't have this or that product, uh, those products no longer exist for us. So the other benefit I like to talk, and actually when I, is about the environment. And when I gave this talk in New Jersey, it was during the Canadian wildfires, fires, and the air in New York and New Jersey, where I was giving this talk was extremely irritating outside. And so there's this you know, raw example of how climate change is affecting us and our health. And I shared with this audience uh, how uh, plant products, which are down here, uh, versus animal products, which are up here, that uh, the order of magnitude of greenhouse gases emitted uh, by the animal products is, is just so much higher than the plant products. So uh, we can really reduce our footprint on the environment by eating more plant-based. And you figure anytime you raise these plants uh, and feed the plants directly to humans, it's going to uh, use less resources and cause less waste than growing these plants and then transporting and feeding these plants to the animals and then transporting the animals to the slaughterhouse and then distributing the uh, animal products throughout the country uh, or world. Uh, just so many more resources are used and so much more waste is created. So uh, for uh, I find that a lot of the young people are really worried about the environment and this can be a motivating factor for them uh, considering their role in the, in the environmental crisis that we're in right now. Medical Society Consortium on Climate Health is a group of physician, um, uh, national physician groups like the American Academy of Pediatrics. And there's about a dozen other uh, groups uh, from national medical societies. And they got together to make a recommendation for how to help the climate and how to help health. And so they issued this statement. Uh, we all have the opportunity to be part of the solution. We can reduce our emissions by reducing automobile use in favor of walking and cycling, taking steps toward a more plant-based healthy diet, reducing our energy consumption, and as it rapidly becomes more affordable, opting for clean energy from state and local utilities. So the American Academy of Pediatrics, they contributed to this statement. So I thought I would take this statement and adapt it for the clinical practice guidelines for obesity. Why not? They've already agreed to this statement. Let's uh, adapt this statement for the clinical practice guidelines. So I rewrote it as, uh, we all have the opportunity to be part of the solution. We can reduce childhood obesity by reducing automobile use in favor of walking and cycling, taking steps towards a more plant-based healthy diet, reducing animal consumption and drinking water from local utilities. So you see what I did there? 
And I would change this statement uh, that was in the 100-page document to reflect the studies and the, uh, the, uh, the uh, consortium, the thinking about the environment statements, um, and say that the nutrition counseling should be a non-diet lifestyle modification approach that teaches families to set goals for meal preparation, grocery shopping, and learning skills, including portion size and label reading. Let's change that to to fill up on whole plants and ha that have no labels. And that was the conclusion of my talk. And uh, this is how you can find me. Uh, I go by Dr. Herbivore because I'm trying to help families be more plant-based. Nice, I love your little zebra logo. And it's got Thank that you. little symbol. Who designed that? That's really cool. And it looks like that's the snake, the, 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 the medicine symbol, the medical yeah. symbol. Yeah, um, I designed it uh, with the help. Uh, I kind of have a had a vision of incorporating the zebra because it's an herbivore. And this is the rod of Escaplus, which is a uh, classic symbol for for medicine. And so I wanted the the Dr. Herbivore uh, kind of symbol. I, I had an inkling of what I wanted and I worked with a, a logo company to, to craft it. My I think the, I think they did a good job um, um, of uh, creating my vision. So yeah, it's um, really beautiful. Thank you. Thank at, you. At first, I didn't notice the you know the the medical symbol, and it looked just like a zebra. But I think that's really cool. Thanks. I'm going to scan your thing right now. I'm doing it right now and see where it takes me. Yeah. See. Yeah. Very cool. Took me right to your website. Oh, good. I'm glad it works. Yeah. And I put those links in the show note. I found your website. I found your Instagram, your Facebook, your LinkedIn. And actually, I found another link to some courses. Do you want to talk about those? And do you want to stop the screen share so you can be bigger again? Yes. I can do it for you if you, there you go. I appreciate you mentioning calorie density. You're speaking my language. I think that's just one of the most beautiful things about the plant-based diet is that it just naturally is low. I mean, unless you're just pounding down, you know, the olive oil, which isn't a whole food anyway, it's just naturally low in calorie density and high in nutrient density. So it's just a win-win. Right. Yeah, so I was working in the um, hospital-based uh, um, uh, pediatric weight management program. Um, and I, I was finding, and the, the families were finding that it was very rigid. So it was one night a week for two hours over 16 weeks. And you know that's several months, and families would fall off. It was hard to keep uh, keep uh, committed to that. Uh, so I wanted when COVID hit my family, my when COVID hit my my hospital pivoted to telemedicine. So I was doing the pediatric kidney disease and the pediatric obesity uh, via telehealth, and uh, the families were loving it. Uh, it's a great way uh, to not have to drive to the office and sit in a waiting room. And I liked it cause I was able to see the home environment and I was doing surprise kitchen tours, uh, asking the families to show me what they had in their fridge. Not that I was cataloging everything, but it's just interesting their reactions like, Oh, look, Dr. Andrew, look at all my fruits and vegetables or, Oh, Dr. Andrew, I'm not going to show you what's in this cabinet. Um, kind of thing. Um, but, uh, yeah, so, um, 2021, I decided to leave that practice and found my own Dr. Herbivore practice to try to uh, take the uh, telehealth aspect and be more flexible uh, so that it wasn't a rigid program and I could work with families. And part of the flexibility was creating these e-courses so that uh, families could, uh, you know, I was repeating stuff a lot, <laughs> and also um, try and help them visualize uh, the content and show, you know, show the studies and show things 
that kind of make it more uh, understandable for different learning styles. Also, you know, if if I'm just here, uh, you know, uh, talking about this or that, uh, that can uh, people maybe want to learn more visually uh, rather than auditory and learning. So uh, I put together these e-courses and that's part of the telehealth program in that I'll be meeting with families and I'll kind of uh, give them assignments through the e-course and then and circle back with them uh, so that uh, we can discuss it. And so, yeah, and then I made these e-courses available to uh, whoever's like outside my state and just wants to do the, the e-courses themselves. So I have three. Uh, one of them is how to um, transition to the plant-based diet, and that's for all ages. Uh, and it goes into the psychology and some of the, the um, challenges and how to really, there's kind of like uh, workbook kind of things and how, how to really set your goals and uh, how to talk to your kids about plant-based and uh, different age groups and, and how to get them on board uh, with the plant-based. So there's that one course. And then another course is specifically about pediatric obesity uh, and uh, you know talking about these studies and others and how to really uh, apply uh, the plant-based diet for pediatric obesity. And then the third course is, is really how for a family how to thrive as plant-based because a lot of the the challenges I would find is that I'd be talking to a family and they'd say, oh, my pediatrician insists I need to eat meat or I need to drink milk. Uh, and so certainly, um, and I actually, I give that course away for free to pediatricians uh, so that they can have an appreciation and an understanding uh, of how to craft or how to at least understand uh, a family that's doing the plant-based diet. But for families, I want them to kind of be reassured uh, on why they might not have to worry about uh, protein or this or that when they're when they're uh, putting together a healthy plant-based diet and maybe the kind of nutrients that they do have to address and uh, make sure that they're meeting their chi child's needs for growth and development. So uh, there's that course too. So uh, they're all available for families out there who have questions about these issues. Thanks for well, that's so kind of you to give it to pediatricians for free because so many people struggle with that same thing where they're plant-based or vegan and they want to raise their children that way and they get pushback from the pediatrician maybe not so much about the meat but for sure about the dairy yeah yeah um so i've been giving pediatric grand rounds since 2017 uh so this is when the pediatric department will get together and maybe in hospitals across the country. And so maybe they'll do some administrative things or they'll have an expert speaker come in. So I've been going in uh, virtually uh, to hospitals, pediatric hospitals and teaching them about the plant-based diet. So I think at this point, I've talked to maybe about a thousand pediatricians, uh, but there's 60,000 in the country, uh, but I'm just trying to raise awareness about the plant-based diet so that uh, when the family comes in, they're not like, oh, where are you getting your calcium? They're like, oh, where are you getting your B12? Uh, you know, so I want to make them be good allies for families that they might have in their practice that are being vegetarian or being plant-based. Well, you only have 59,000 more to talk to. I know, yeah. Uh, Pretty good. Well, you, so mentioned, <laughs> you mentioned B12 and one of the viewers is saying, as a parent, thank you for the example and inspiration. Do vegan kids typically require anything other than the proper food and B12? No, but um, one of the, not necessarily, but I do one of the lessons in uh, the courses is a blood test to talk to your pediatrician about. Uh, so yeah, it would be worthwhile to check a hemoglobin and make sure that they're not developing any anemia, anemia from uh, perhaps iron deficiency or 
or even zinc deficiency or things like that. So, so there are some blood tests that, uh, that you might want to talk to your pediatrician about just to be sure. Um, nothing really extreme. It's stuff that they're probably checking anyway. Um, and if, uh, it's good to check. And then I also, uh, I also like chronometer. Uh, so one of the lessons in the, how to thrive as a plant-based child is a lesson for the family about how to use chronometer. And that's an app and a software that uh, you can enter your food diary into, and it'll show you uh, down to 82 different micronutrients, what you're getting, uh, and it can be really reassuring. Mostly when I do it with the families, uh, it turns out, oh, they're getting 200% of this or 150% of that. Uh, families are often surprised uh, how much extra stuff they're actually getting. Uh, you know, we're, we're uh, marketed to, oh, we need this vitamin. Oh, we need this protein supplement. We need that uh, kind of to ensure that we're getting enough of stuff. But when you really break it down with chronometer, um, we're getting, we're, we're getting more than enough of a lot of stuff. And the problem is in this country is more overconsumption uh, than, than deficits of things. So that can be reassuring to a family too. Uh, I like to, when you work with me, uh, it's for, uh, that's a 12 week program for pediatric obesity. Uh, but I really wanna give you the tools like knowing how to use the chronometer so that going forward, uh, you can continue to reassure yourself and check up on things and uh, don't, don't need doctors. <laughs> so. Wow. Are your courses delivered, like, are they evergreen or is there a start and stop date? And are you live in any of the courses, like for people to ask questions? So how, how are they delivered? Right. Uh, yeah. You just order it once and then you have lifetime access. And I've even updated the courses. Uh, for example, Chronometer changed their user interface last year. So I, um, I changed the lessons regarding Chronometer to reflect the new user interface. So yeah, and I send out a message when I update stuff. And I also, there's um, opportunities for feedback uh, on the course. So if, uh, if you, there's another topic that would be of interest or another, uh, you know, area that is confusing, then I ask for feedback so that people can help evolve the course. But uh, yeah, I'm not live in any courses, again, because I'm only licensed in New York and New Jersey. So I don't want to give the impression that I'm giving medical advice uh, outside of those states. Uh, and there's actually like a disclaimer at the start, like, this is for information purposes only, please discuss this with your, your doctor who knows you best. Um, but uh, yeah, uh, I, I'm trying to help uh, the, the families out there that are looking for resources that uh, want to raise their kids properly with the plant-based diet. Great. Well, thank you. You mentioned about gastric bypass surgery in children. I know in adults, there's a, they, like, because Dr. Lyle actually does this, they have to see a, some kind of a psychologist to make sure that they're a good candidate. Do children go through that process as well? Uh, it's varied. Yeah, it's varied. Um, they're, they're working, they're working uh, predominantly with adult gastric bypass surgeons. Uh, there's no, uh, I'm not aware of any specific because the this is like a new recommendation. So there's no surgeon out there that just does the pediatric cases. So often you'll be a teenagers uh, in uh, the adult kind of realm. Uh, so yeah, I, I spoke to one um, uh, doctor who does uh, this, this surgery on kids, and she says she does about one a month. So you know the rest of her month is uh, working on the adults. And then uh, maybe one time a month she does uh, someone under 18. But you'll be in with their um, 
their adult dietitians and their adult uh, psychologists, and the you'll go through the adult program. I'm not aware of any specific pediatric program. So yeah, there is that psychological evaluation for sure as part of the um, as part of the workup and care before and after the surgery. Uh, but who knows if this becomes more widespread, then there might be separate pediatric bariatric surgeons, and then they'll have their own kind of programs. It just seems that their that their body's still growing. So wouldn't it make sense to wait just a little bit till they reached their, you know? Yeah, that's that's been studied. Um, that often that the children with obesity, because uh, they're so overnourished, uh, that they grow quicker. Um, that they reach their their uh, adult height kind of quicker, and uh, a child's growth is going to be completed around 15, 15 and a half uh, when their growth plates fuse. And so the American Academy of Pediatrics said that uh, it's okay to operate down to age 13. That that they've probably you know you can there there are ways to test if someone has more growth potential or if they've reached their uh, maximum adult height. But that is a consideration, and and it is it's just a another variable that needs to be uh, confirmed and addressed. That they're still, even though they've had the bariatric surgery, they're still getting adequate nutrition if they still have more growth to be done. Uh, but the hope is that uh, it provides them decades of reduced risk for heart disease and diabetes and other obesity-related complications. But that's to be determined, right? It has not been studied long-term yet because they only recently right. started doing that. It just seems to me a bit extreme, especially given the presentation you showed with calorie density, with plates of pasta. I mean, you know, my understanding is gastric, gastric bypass mechanically makes the stomach smaller, but if you eat in the manner you proposed, you're making the food bigger. You're getting the same effect, early satiety. And so I just, I'm just can't figure out why someone wouldn't even just want to try this before having their body parts cut out. Right. Yeah. That's much more permanent. And uh, th this is more cost-effective too. Those surgeries are, are costly uh, for the healthcare system and for families. And yeah, there's a lot of, you know, pros and cons to be weighed. Hmm. So Susanna, who's watching live, says, what are your best suggestions for switching teens and young adults to a plant-based diet? Right. So I like to try to figure out what the child or the teen, the young adult is interested in. So uh, if they're interested in the environment, uh, encouraging them to watch documentary like Cowspiracy. But, uh, you know, the, the teen might necessarily uh, not be worried about developing heart disease in a few decades, but uh, they are aware of the environment. Or uh, for the young athlete, uh, getting them to watch a movie like Game Changers or um, even there are musicians out there uh, and actors that are big plant-based advocates. So really trying to figure out what they're into and uh, trying to reach them on that level, on that channel, uh, so that it, it, again, it can be hard for them to uh, think about uh, how they're going to be as an adult decades later with, with disease. But if you can tap into whatever they're passionate right now, then hopefully that they can... Uh, uh, find the motivation to and reasoning to stick with it. Um, I had one young lady who was cleaning up her parks on the weekends, local parks. And I was like, oh, that's great that you're doing that. Uh, let's talk about how your food choices affect the, the environment globally. So things like that. Um, or if they're interested in music or a particular sport, I try to find uh, someone in that genre or that sport who's plant-based and posting on social media and talking about 
the ethics or the environment or or their health or sports performance. So really trying to understand what the what the team is interested in. But if you if you okay, <laughs> I just I know the person asking this question and she continues to buy the unhealthy food. So as long as it's in the person's environment, why would they ever change as long as they have access to the food in question? Because right, you know, you talked about the pleasure trap. Right. And yeah, you said if the food's in the house, it's in the mouth, right? Yeah. Um, right. So trying to get the whole family on board is important. Um, but it can be a struggle, especially with the teens, with if they if they have their own car, if they have their own money from earning and can uh, their travel and be out. So that's why I hope to, hope to find some kind of internal motivations also for when they're in the social situations. Absolutely. Well, that's my my feeling is, is, you know, that just have your house the way you want it, unless they're paying rent and what they do outside the house. That's oh well, you know, so I should I should be charging my kids who eat cheese rent then. Yeah, cheese. I love that cheese Thank you so much, because I felt <laughs> so bad about my comment. And I've been sitting here stewing the whole time. But you just came up with a great um, idea. Cheese rent. <laughs> cheese rent, yes. <laughs> Thank you. You know, I, I was listening to some of the podcasts you did before the show, and you won a science fair project and you got dollars. <laughs> Tell me about that. That sounds really interesting because I, I competed in science fairs and I never took first. <laughs> right. Oh, yeah. You, you've done your homework. That's great. So I've, I've, um, I've had a long interest in high blood pressure. I did an 11th grade science project that uh, got fourth place at the local science fair. And the science project was about hypertension and blood pressure. Uh, and I got a $5 prize and my friends and I spent that $5 at a fast food joint on the way home. So I hadn't made the connection, at least in 11th grade, uh, between the salt and the fast food and the, the blood pressure at that point. What uh, was the experiment? Like, was it like, it was it, because oh. when I think of mine, I, mine was about electro, not electro, I can't even remember, but I, I, you know, I had like things that moved and little parts and you plugged yeah. it in. Like, so was it, was it posters? Was it, do you still remember it? Do you still have it? Cause that sounds. Well, I don't, yeah. I don't know if I still have it, but um, so I was interested in blood pressure and I was able to um, work with a, um, a person who was doing biofeedback. So um, biofeedback is uh, measuring uh, some physiologic process and trying to change it uh, through various techniques. So this particular uh, project I did, I was measuring uh, finger temperature. So uh, hypertension is a lot of vasoconstriction. And so the theory was that I could, uh, that people could get um, their blood pressure to lower by thinking about warm things in their hands, running their hands through warm sand on the beach or holding a warm mug of tea or something like that. So by relaxing the blood vessels and visualizing uh, warmth in our hands, we could lower the blood pressure measured in our arms. So I actually, I made an audio tape, uh, this little, you know, little tape deck, and I had my uh, other students in my, in my high school come to the nurse's station and um, listen uh, either to um, an audio tape of me reading this thing I had written about warm hands and uh, versus I think I just had like music or something. And I was trying to see if I could get my, the other students to um, warm their hands and lower their blood pressure. And uh, it didn't really work out. I think the problem was that um, I was dealing with a healthy population. And uh, so they didn't really have high blood pressure to be lowered. So it's it's harder to make a, a normal blood pressure more normal. 
Uh, so maybe if I had done that experiment on a, on a sicker population and shown that uh, uh, visualizing warming our hands could lower our blood pressure, maybe I would have gotten first place. Uh, <laughs> Do you still have that audio that you made? <laughs> no, I wonder. Um, but yeah, I was, I was like, you know, you're walking on the beach. It was like a really soothing. <laughs> well, that, you know, um, we'll I think I I think some of my classmates broke out laughing at me, <laughs> um, but uh, yeah, it was kind of interesting and it was fun to go through the process of, you know, um, with my other students in my school. Um, some of them had pretty amazing uh, science projects. It sounds projects. like you're really creative because you had, you drew that logo. It sounds like oh. you have a very creative streak. So that's Thanks. really very cool. Our, I know you mentioned you were a nephrologist. Do kids young, that young ever have to go on dialysis due to dietary folly? Uh, no, not due to dietary. So like the number one cause for the need for dialysis in adults is diabetes. Uh, but the number one cause in kids is um, uh, birth defects. So some kind of uh, congenital anomaly of the kidneys or bladder. And then um, they just don't have the kidney function to thrive. And so they need to go on dialysis. In the teenagers, there are um, diseases like lupus. Uh, there's another one called focal segmental glomerular sclerosis, FSGS. Um, so these are the kind of diseases, acquired diseases, don't quite know where they come from, but uh, sometimes genetic. And uh, those are what put the teenagers on dialysis. And uh, yeah, there's uh, so a few reasons, but versus those aren't really dietary versus um, the uh, adults. Now, I wonder, you know, when I was in medical school in the 90s, uh, the type 2 diabetes was called adult onset diabetes because it happened to adults. But now it's called type 2 diabetes because it's happening to kids. And the kids are the kids are starting to have these effects of, uh, of the obesity. Like I saw a lot of kids with hypertension, didn't see anyone in kidney failure yet, but I, but I wonder, I wonder if there are kids out there that are um, that are starting to develop. Actually, I I I did a, I did an experiment on this. I did an experiment uh, as a fellow, as a pediatric nephrology fellow, actually measuring, uh, looking at the urines of newly diagnosed teenagers with type two diabetes and finding microalbumin in the urine. And the progression of kidney disease is first microalbumin. It's a very small specific protein that shouldn't really be in the urine, but showed up in kids with newly diagnosed type two diabetes. And then that progresses to over protein in the urine. And then that progresses to uh, the creatinine going up, which is the kidneys uh, failing. And then that progresses to dialysis. So I saw uh, in this research project that I did back in uh, in my fellowship uh, around maybe 2002, um, actually early kidney changes from type two diabetes in kids. So, you know, it, it takes years or decades to go from microalbumin to protein to the worsening serum creatinine to dialysis. Hopefully that won't be happening in kids due to diabetes, but who knows. What's a typical day of eating look like for you? Uh, lots of starches. Uh, I'd start my day with uh, let's uh, oatmeal. I really like oatmeal with uh, fruit or cranberries, uh, some chia, and something to sweeten up, maybe maple syrup or brown sugar. And then, uh, yeah, uh, in my home, we we uh, kind of, like I said, we kind of rotate the meals, uh, trying to keep it varied, try to keep it seasonal. 
But a lot of times we'll, uh, in order to appease the three teenagers, um, we'll do make your own burritos, make your own pizza, make your own pasta, so by, by make your own like the toppings. Uh, so this is a recommendation that I have also for kids with, uh, for, for families with kids with varying tastes is to really have the, rather than make one meal that some kids are gonna reject. So we have the make your own burrito and uh, with the beans and the rice and the salsa. And in my home, there is- uh, Okay, we won't even- <laughs> um, but uh, or um, or tomatoes. Uh, actually, my 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 daughter is a great gardener, so we we have some stuff from her garden. So, but that that is a recommendation. But yeah, I, I like a lot of potatoes too. Uh, throwing back to Dr. McDougall and the starch solution, and a lot of pasta. Um, so uh, yeah, I I do eat I, I do eat more processed foods than our, I would. If anything, I would be better cutting back on that. I'm a very active cyclist. I enjoy cycling, as I said in the beginning. So I feel like sometimes I need more of the processed foods just to get some more calories in because I'll go out on a bike ride and uh, burn 2,000, 3,000 calories and you can't really make that up uh, with a potato. <laughs> uh, so uh, I do eat more of the processed foods and my family is very active. So uh, we don't have a problem with obesity. Uh, if we did, we'd cut back on the processed foods. Again, eating more along the sliding scale of the whole foods. Nice. Well, great. You know, I mean, I, I was obese as a child and I know it's not easy. And I think that's why I have such, you know, empathy for, for kids that, or well, actually anybody, but kids, especially, because it's, I, I think about, I don't know if you're familiar and I'm going to use the word, I know we're not supposed to use the word fat, but I'm quoting a quote. So I hope that's okay. Um, but there is a, a well-known pediatrician in Santa Monica, pediatrician to the stars. I don't know if you ever heard of Dr. Jay Gordon. He's written many books. And one of the things he always said is, a, and again, I'm using a quote, so please don't admonish me. He says, this was like 20 years ago, he said it, he said, a fat kid never has a good day at school. And he used to say that on television and stuff. And he didn't mean it in meanness. He meant it empathetically that it's not easy being overweight or obese in general, but especially as a child. Yeah. And not just from the other kids. Um, there have been studies that showed that it's the teachers uh, that are um, making it more difficult for the kids with obesity that, um, uh, there are studies that showed surveys of teachers that show that their expectations are are lower for a child with obesity about how they're going to do with uh, new content with uh, this kind of test or that to, like so they're 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 kind of setting the kids up for failure almost uh, and uh, not ex not expecting as as high achieving uh, from the uh, kids with obesity so not just the other kids but sometimes even the teachers and and the gym teachers and the math teachers, even there's definitely so, discrimination. So that's, you yeah. know, that's a real thing. You know, um, there's a movement called health at every size where uh, people say and believe that doesn't matter what your weight is. And I'm not here to argue that, but there is these, there are these cards you can buy now online where you hand them to your doctor and say, do not weigh me. That will shame me. So in a, in a child, do you, do you not weigh them? Do you just let it be, or is that important information sometimes for a child to know their weight? Right. Um, sometimes you have in the clinics, we'll have the kids um, face back to their scale. Uh, so, you know, um, you take the child's blood pressure and you don't necessarily announce it. Um, likewise, you can take the child's weight with their back to their scale so that they don't see it and it's not being announced. 
and that can be more comfortable for a child. And you look at other metrics like um, how the clothes are fitting uh, and things like that. And there are other non-scale victories um, like one of one of uh, the patients that I worked with, he was a lacrosse player, and he could never finish the one mile warm up uh, for the lacrosse practice. And then he started to be able to finish the one mile warm up, the run. Uh, so there's there's other kind of non scale victories uh, that can be uh, above and beyond just focusing on the number. And um, yeah, you know, one of the concerns, and this is brought up in the clinical practice guidelines, is about is talking to a child about healthy eating going to encourage or or trigger an eating disorder? And actually, there are studies that uh, that that's not likely to happen when handled appropriately, uh, or about it or something like that. Uh, that hope that can be more triggering. But uh, when handled appropriately, actually studies have shown that it can reduce the risk of an eating disorder. For example, there was a study of tween girls uh, and it surveyed them as to what kind of unhealthy dieting behaviors they were doing, like skipping meals or over-exercising or even uh, vomiting. Uh, and then the, these young girls went through a healthy eating program. And at the end, uh, they were surveyed again. And after they had learned about healthy eating, that they um, the risk of them doing these unhealthy habits was cut in half. So here's an example of uh, discussing and presenting healthy eating as actually reducing the risk of uh, eating disorders. And then I also like to talk about, there's something called the adolescent dieting scale, which looks at eight criteria as to um, if someone is likely to be engaged, the more behaviors they're engaged in, the more likely they are to develop an eating disorder. And plant-based eating really only encourages two out of the eight. Um, so the plant-based, uh, it doesn't really fit with uh, encouraging someone towards an eating disorder. And it doesn't seem like not talking about it is going to help. So you know, well, thank yeah. you so much for your work and especially for giving that course away for free to pediatricians. How would, because, you know, I do know some pediatricians and how would they access that course? Would they just email you if they were interested, if they were a pediatrician? Yeah, they can email me and I give them an access code. That's fantastic. Well, are, are, do you know any of the other plant based pediatricians like Dr. Y Yami and? Uh, yes. Yeah. Um, actually, uh, had the pleasure. I, can I? plug another. Sure, uh, of course. Anything plant-based you can plug. Yeah, anything. All right. So Whole Communities is an online group uh, that was founded by Dr. Campbell. And uh, we have a forum there and uh, where we discuss uh, how to help the community uh, become more plant-based. It's not the kind of place to go uh, looking for recipes or just discuss where you get your protein. It's people who are firmly plant-based and uh, are looking for support and ideas and uh, that kind of creative outlet for expanding the plant-based universe. And so I'm a moderator there and uh, we have um, guest speakers like, and just uh, maybe just a few weeks ago, we had Dr. Yami come and talk to our group. Uh, so if you're interested in whole communities, I can, I can give you a link for that. Um, and uh, happy to have people join and uh, there are, there are uh, plant-based doctors that come, uh, as well as we talk about like agriculture and soil health and the environment and everything kind of uh, all around healthy plant-based lifestyle. So uh, I'd like to plug that too, because I'm a moderator there and uh, it's a really wonderful group that we uh, get some great discussions 
and uh, great speakers like like you mentioned, Dr. Yami. Great. Well, if you give me the link, I promise I can add anything you want to the show notes. All right. Yeah. Uh, well, thank you. Welcome. Thank you for a very informative presentation and for your work, Dr. Edinger. Thank you. And thank you for bringing up the cheese. We're going to no, revisit this. I'm never going to uh, live. I'm never going to live that down. I felt, I mean, the minute I said it, it's like, you know, you got those two things on your shoulder and it's like, oh, you know, I, I wish I could have just taken the pen from men in black and erased it. I, I think I feel I just know. so strongly because I work with so many people that just have a, a problem. And, and in your case, your kids are probably healthy and not obese. And they just, they just that their kids have whatever you, they want. And it's just, I don't know. I'm not a parent, so I need to shut my mouth. But anyway, but I do like the idea of cheese rent. I mean, I just think it's a fabulous concept, you know? It doesn't have to be cheese rent. It can be any kind of like un, unhealth, like a swear jar, you know? Okay, you know, you're going to eat that. You got to put money in the jar, kind of. No money goes to charity, something like that. Could be kind of fun. Well, I'm here to learn from you also. And here I am, uh, uh, preaching about plant-based diet and and my kids are eating cheese but uh well, it's just because from what i understand and i'm not a doctor that of all the animal products that it's uh, the the dairy is probably the most deleterious and then of course you know the processed meats the grilled meats but anyway i i apologize and they're telling me stop apologizing but i can't help it i'm stop apologizing i'm what jewish i just have, i have a lot of guilt what can i tell I, you Anyway, um, so you've, anyway. Given me a, you've given me a challenge and that's, yeah, yeah, but just, you know, and that's the thing when you're a stand-up comedian, you sometimes stuff comes out your mouth. Steve Allen used to say that he was a speaker at the college I graduated from. He said, one of the biggest problems is it comes out of my mouth before my brain has a chance to think about it. So mm -hmm. it makes me good at comedy, but not so good at, at uh, social things sometimes, but, but thank no you worries. so much. It was a great presentation and uh, thank you so much again. Thank you for having me. My pleasure. And thanks all of you for watching another episode of Chef AJ Live. Please come back at 8 a.m. tomorrow for Dr. Peter Rogers. He's going to have his greatest nutrition insights. Take care, everyone. Bye-bye.